2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6. And then we'll turn the back of our hymnals to the Westminster Confession of Faith. So 2 Corinthians 6, and then also page 3. I'm sorry, 934, 934. Okay, let's uh, look at 2 Corinthians 6, um, starting in verse 14. This is God's holy and infallible word. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians six fourteen. Do not be bound together with unbelievers... For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And we'll look at Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24. We're looking at sections 3 and 4. Section 3, this is page 934. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. And therefore such as profess the true Reformed religion should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden by the word. Nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. Let's pray. Our beloved Lord, we pray that you would help us um, with um, understanding what your word says concerning marriage, and what, what are lawful marriages, what are unlawful marriages. Help us, we pray, uh, to understand and to heed and obey your word. For we ask these things for Christ's uh, glory, and, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Section 3 starts off, section three starts off by saying, It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Now, a classic example of something that would be forbidden according to this section is the practice of what happens with Muslims and that has happened for a very long time and happens in modern times as well where Muslims 
as conquests would take wives by force or, and force them to marry. Um, and my question is, do you think that such wives were able to give their consent in such a situation? And I would say the answer is no. Uh, women in such a situation would be beaten if they did not participate in uh, the marriage. Section 3 speaks of consent that is of one's own desire rather than by duress. Now, duress is another word for coercion, or coercion uh, which is the use of threats, violence, uh, constraints, manipulation, or some other action to bear on someone to make them do something that is against their will or against their better judgment. Okay, so this confession says that we are a person is able should marry if they're able with judgment to give their consent. In other words, you can't be forced by someone to do something. If you're being forced by someone to do something, it's not with your consent, and it's not the building ground for what we would say is a uh, a biblical marriage. So marriage according to Scripture, is a covenant between a man and a woman ordained by God that it's intended for a lifetime. It's a decision that should be made willingly, that should be willingly entered into by both man and woman. That's why it mentions here about giving consent. Now, another example of something that is a practice in, um, in the modern world that some might say is against Section 3 would be arranged marriages. Have you ever thought of that? An arranged marriage. You don't have consent of who you're going to marry because mom and dad has already decided it. And uh, um, in other words, you could say that if, if it was a typical arranged marriage that may be d- done in a tyrannical fashion, it would not work. However, there has been some wholesome, I would call it a modernization of the ancient practice of arranged marriages. And I was looking at an article regarding this, and it's, um, it's from a website called brides.com. And it talks about a modern practice of arranged marriage. It says, uh, while we traditionally think of an arranged marriage to mean Showing up at the altar to meet your spouse for the first time, the modern take has more negotiation. While the family influence is still key, and indeed, it is often the family choosing the potential partner. Some people are given a power of veto. So the conclusion is that today's arranged marriages with this modern practice um, has more emphasis on free choice. Now, if you analyze that, what that looks more like is a biblical modern, a biblical model of uh, courtship. In in biblical courtship, it's not only the child's or the young person's decision who they should marry. The parents have a great say so in who they who their a young person should marry. They would uh, a a young person would want to have the blessing and the guidance of their parents in a model of what we call courtship. Now, let's look a little bit more at this. This article goes on to say, in the United States, while the divorce rate of traditional marriage, as we have it with the dating system, is around 40 or 50 percent, the divorce rate for arranged marriages in the United States is 4 percent. 
In India, where we estimate that 90% of marriages are arranged, the divorce rate is only 1%. So you have to ask yourself, what's a wiser practice? Conventional dating or courtship? And again, I'm going to say that this arranged marriage with the modern modification is a very close um, similarity to what we would call biblical courtship. Um, so whether you want to call it arranged marriages or biblical courtship, the key here is that you're accessing something of great value, which is the wisdom of age. And you're having the recommendation and the advice of, I would say it would be wise not to just have the advice of parents, but parents and elders and pastors, and also to have this honoring of the fifth commandment. Some young people don't take it into, into mind that they need to honor the fifth commandment and who they marry. That not only do their parents, their, especially godly parents, give approval, but their godly parents and grandparents give approval of the person that they want to marry. Um, another process I would say in guiding this is that um, grandparents and parents and elders and pastors, who older people, wiser people, who are advising young people in marriage, can maybe see if it's necessary to slow matters down. Don't move so fast. Here are questions that you should ask one another. Because if you leave it up to a young person to make all these decisions based upon their infatuation, based upon attraction, that's not a safe sound foundation for a life that for one of life's absolutely most important decisions section three says yet it is the duty of christians to marry only in the lord and therefore such as profess the true reform religion should not marry with infidels papists or other idolaters Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. And that passage uh, I read from 2 Corinthians 6 is the, um, the, a root passage in this language here. Um, if you look at it in verse 14, 2 Corinthians six fourteen. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, the other translations have the word, do not be unequally yoked. Um, I believe that is a more literal, yeah, that's, that's the literal translation from the Greek is, don't be unequally yoked. And what it's talking about is a, you could see, well, and the reason it's bound together here is because that's what you would do when you had a plow and you were going to use two animals to plow a field. You would put a yoke, one piece of wood that was contoured and shaped that would go down on the shoulders of the animal and it was strapped and attached to the animal so you could pull a plow. Well, if you're going to pull a plow through heavy, tough terrain and you needed two, two animals, you would use two of the same. You would use two donkeys, or you would use 
maybe a, a, an ox and a donkey. Now, let's just try to take a picture of how, what, it would sound, what it would look like to take a yoke, which is supposed to be horizontal and level, and you put it on an ox and a donkey. An ox this high and a donkey this low, and you put this yoke, and the yoke is all lopsided. The only thing you're going to plow is plow in a circle in a, in a crazy, haphazard, peculiar manner because the yoke is not equal. In other words, donkeys go with donkeys and ox go with oxen. It shouldn't be unequally yoked. You don't want to put a huge animal with a small animal. You want them the same. That's the analogy of Scripture here, of equally yoked. You need people who are of the same faith, the same love for God, the same devotion to Jesus Christ. And if you have someone who is not a believer, you're unequally yoked, and you're looking for a catastrophic, destructive process when you're trying to plow the field, the field of marriage, it's going to be a total, absolute wreck, and it's going to be a catastrophe. Again, um, what this passage would absolutely, absolutely forbid would be this notion of missionary dating. I'm going to date someone, and I'm going to love them, and I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to hope that they come to Christ. Or why don't I just do missionary marriage? I love him, I love him, and I'm going to marry this one and, and, and hope that he or she comes to Christ. No. It, that is something that is absolutely forbidden by Scripture. It goes, uh, being forbidden to marry a papist um, here, in the language here, is not to say that all Roman Catholics are unbelievers, are on par, on par with infidels. You could say that would be a Muslim. However, they are, component, uh, they are components uh, of the religious mass or the practice of the religious mass that are outright idolatry. Um, that's why I believe the language here, if you look at it carefully, this section is basically saying that r- papists or Roman Catholics are idolaters. Here are a couple of examples of that. They lift up the elements. This is the body of Christ. And they believe because of transubstantiation that they bow down and they worship the piece of bread. And that, that is not called for anywhere in Scripture. So that would be idolatry. Other example of idolatry would be praying to saints, bowing down before statues, that, things of that sort. And... Um, many components of the Mass um, are considered idolatry. Now, does it mean that Catholics are not Christians? No. But does our confession absolutely forbid marriage to a Catholic? Absolutely yes. Because it's something that's dangerous. Now, what if someone... Um, a young person is dating an individual who says that they're transitioning out of the Roman Catholic Church and maybe they're visiting our church every once in a while or maybe they're visiting other Protestant churches every once in a while and they're kind of riding the fence and they they say they're kind of coming out or transitioning outside of the Catholic Church. I think that's a dangerous situation to have a relationship in that case because once the ring is... Once the ring and once the vows are exchanged, what they're gonna, they very well likely may just transition right back 
because they have what they want. Because maybe they can't find a godly spouse in the church where they are, so they're looking outside. Um, I think if, if someone is a Roman Catholic and they find interest in our church, they find interest in the Reformed faith, that's great. But if someone wants to marry them, they need to be committed. An example of uh, being committed is that parents should not entertain letting their child marry someone unless they are a member in good standing, regularly worshiping in a Protestant Trinitarian church. Um. I would say go a step further. Just worshiping in a church is not enough. Is that person growing in the fruit of the Holy Spirit? If they're not, maybe it's not a good candidate for your, your young person. Now again, this goes back to the first section um, where we talked a little bit about uh, you know, arranged marriages and the intimate involvement of parents in a choice of a young person who uh, someone should marry. Um, when I um, was courting Marianne, I, I did go and ask for approval of her dad for her hand in marriage. Um, and that's the kind of thing that you know, somebody would say that's old-fashioned, but that's rooted in a biblical practice that you, the parent or the father has authority over who his daughter should marry. Um, now, let's, let's go and say on a practical um, and a very difficult statement, really. If there is a young person in our church who is a member and they are deciding that they want to marry someone who is forbidden, according to what the Westminster Confession of Faith says, they want to marry someone who is not in the Christian faith, maybe, a, uh, like it says here, an infidel, a papist, or someone who's notoriously wicked or holding to damnable heresies. I think it's the, the job of the session of the church to exercise church discipline or to threaten to exercise church discipline over such an individual. And if you think about it, that's what we vow when we join the church, that we would submit to the authority of the church to the Holy Scriptures, and to the standards of the church. And that's what our standards teach, is basically that these things are forbidden. Now that's tough love, but that's necessary love in the case of guarding young people. Section 4 <clears throat> moves on to say that marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden by the word, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. Um, a person of close consanguinity, uh, that means someone who is a, of a close blood or genetic relationship. Now, the confession doesn't go in to say relationship by marriage but as we'll see as we look at scripture it's not just blood or genetic relation it has to do with relation either by blood or through marriage by blood or through marriage let's look at leviticus 18 turn to leviticus 18 starting at verse 6 
Um, we'll read from 6 to verse 18. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, that is, the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. Now, that's a, a, that's a, a wife, maybe, not of blood relation. You are not to uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for their nakedness is yours. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, born to your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your father's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your of your mother's sister, she is your mother's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. So here's a woman who's not of blood relation, but she's by relation, by marriage, and she's forbidden. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. It is lewdness. You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. Okay, we'll stop there. Now, there's a lot of things, of relations forbidden, and what we, we call in these both relations by blood and relations by marriage. But notice, um, many close relations are forbidden, but surprisingly, it's not mentioned of first cousins, second or third cousins. Now, I know it's a a thing that I believe many states, I think it's at least 19 states or more, have laws against the marriage to first cousins. But as far as Scripture goes, I don't think that we see that in, in the text. However, um, I do want to cite a piece of research here, and it's by a, a, a group uh, called the Journal of uh, Community Genetics. I'm going to read this for you. It says, Children of first Cousin marriages have an increased risk of autosomal recessive genetic disorders, and this risk is higher in populations that are already highly ethnically similar. Okay, what does that mean? Well, an example is in, is in New Jersey. Uh, you have Mar Italians who only want to marry other Italians, and sometimes it ends up having genetic problems like thalassemia, which might... My, uh, thank God it's thalassemia minor, but 
the marriage of people who have too much uh, ethnic similarity, it's not good to have intermarriage between first cousins because it increases the, the risk of these genetic disorders. Um, I think, <laughs> I know this sounds crazy, but supposedly there's an advocate group out there who's trying to promote rights for first cousins to marry. There's a lot of things I want to advocate for, but why in the world would you want to join a group like that? <laughs> well, anyway, I guess, I, I guess they're feeling it's a, it's a matter of discrimination and they, they think they shouldn't, have law, they shouldn't have laws against this and whatever. Um, I don't think it's wise. Um, again, uh, Scripture doesn't absolutely forbid it, but it's not wise. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5.1 gives an example of a man who's condemned by having a relationship with his father's wife. Uh, it's considered both as incest and fornication. Now, why does the text not say uh, adultery? It mentions the word fornication, which is sexual immorality. Now, is it possible that they were no longer married? That his father had divorced this lady and then later on they got together? Regardless of uh, how it is, it's something that is not allowable. Uh, it's, it, it, by their being married together, it's as if she has become a blood relative and it, would be, it was considered incest. Now, from the start, I do believe from this passage that this was the man's second or third wife. It wasn't his first wife, which would have been his own blood relative on his own mother, because it doesn't say... This man has committed incest with his mother, it says his father's wife. So I don't think it happened. I think it was a different woman other than his own mother. Now, there are some people um, who try to argue against Holy Scripture, and they try to use what they think is an airtight apologetic against the Word of God. They'll say, well, doesn't the Bible forbid marriage to siblings? Well... Who did Adam and Eve's children marry? Well, they obviously had to end up marrying some siblings because it was a special situation at the very dawn of mankind. They had many sons and daughters, and then those sons and daughters married, and they had children after that. But that was something that was permissible at the time, at the dawn of creation. Scripture later on, in Leviticus 18, clearly forbids that. In God's wisdom, he has reasons why he has done so, and, and I believe um, God knows better than us, and perhaps a lot of the, the laws concerning this had to do with the genetic problems of people marrying close relatives. Um, all this is something, I, I know this, especially for some young people, might be a little hard to hear, but I do think that being faithful in who you marry is something that can help or something that can break your faith. If you marry someone who is outside the kingdom of Christ, it could wreck your faith in Christ. But if you marry someone who is a person who loves the Lord God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, or you marry a woman who loves the Lord with her whole mind, soul, and strength, it can help your faith. Because you have two people equally yoked together who love the Lord and are devoted one to another. And it, rather than a hindrance or a, a, a ball and chain, it is something that is a great blessing that can help you 
to greater exalt Jesus Christ in your life. Let's pray together. Our blessed Lord, we do thank you for this, your word, and we we pray that you would bless and help us, we pray, especially those young people who are yet to get married. We pray that you would, even at this moment, that you would ordain for them, that you would set aside for them godly spouses, um, that they would have a life in the Christian church that would be strengthened immensely by who they marry. Lord, we pray that you would help our young people to have self-control. And we pray, Lord God, that you would give guidance to parents in, in teaching and, and guiding and, and helping their children in this a very important decision of who they ought to marry. And Lord, give self-control to our young people that they would marry only in the Lord. Lord, bless us, we pray. Help us to remember the wonderful things that you've done for us through Christ our Lord. And bless our church. We ask these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.